You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show and podcast. My name is Lisa Kovacevic. Joining me tonight is Cerise Howard, Sally Christie and Stuart Richards. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hi there. Hello. Uh, on tonight's show, Simon Baker breathes new life into Tim Winton's breath. Jacqueline McKenzie stars in Australian lo-fi sci-fi The Gateway. And we review an album slash narrative film project slash a motion picture in Janelle Monet's Dirty Computer. But first, based on the award-winning novel by Tim Winton, Breath is the feature film directorial debut of actor Simon Baker. It tells the story of two teenage boys growing up in a remote pocket of 1970s Western Australia. Pikelet, played by newcomer Sam Coulter and his best friend Looney, Ben Spence, who's another first-timer, come from starkly different homes. Pikelet's father is gentle and his mother still kisses him goodnight, whereas wild child Looney lives in a pub and is in fear of his father's violent hand. Living on the coast and on the verge of adulthood, the best friends soon find themselves enthralled by surfing. They strike up a friendship with a much older man, Sando, played by Simon Baker, a former surfing professional. Sando Sando takes the boys under his wing, mentoring them on how to master the dangers of the ocean and its waves. A mysterious figure with a surly young American wife, Eva, played by Elizabeth DeBecky, Sando pushes the boys toward greater risk-taking on the oceans and in life. While Simon Baker directed and stars in the film, Breath also marks Baker's first screenwriting credit. He co-wrote the screenplay with the novel's author, Tim Winton, and veteran screenwriter, Gerard Lee. Um, Sally, what did you think of Baker's directorial debut? Did it take your breath away? But there's going to be heaps more puns tonight. <laughs> Look, in, in, in some regards, yes, it did. I thought visually it was absolutely gorgeous. I think it was filmed down in Albany, which is right down the very, very bottom of Perth, which is a really beautiful place. And I'm pretty sure that's where Tim Winton grew up i think Mm -hmm. i could be wrong but i'm pretty sure that's his hometown um so i guess it would be autobiographical in that sense um so visually i thought it was pretty incredible uh story-wise it didn't really resonate too much with me maybe i'm not a teenage boy that's into surfing but that's okay Mm. there were some things that i did think that it touched on an interesting way particularly I guess with teenage sexuality and um, the realisation, I guess, for teens and young adults that sometimes sex isn't what it seems to be. It's perhaps something that's not comfortable at all times and that sometimes you put yourself in a situation when you're a little bit naive about things when you're younger and perhaps do things that you don't want to. That I thought that kind of came across quite well, but I'm sure that... A few of us probably have a lot to say about the sort of sexual relationship that was portrayed in the film. Mm, yeah. But, and also the absence of the parents and another older male figure I thought was really quite authentic to what teens are. You know, you don't listen to your parents often and there's other adults that are around that you're going to take heed from more, which I thought came through pretty well. I still thought there was room to explore the increasing absence of Pikelet's relationship with his parents. Mm. I think there are several scenes where that's touched on sort of in the sort of the second half of the film 
but I, I still wanted more with that, I think. Yeah, there was a nice scene um, where his father is sort of looking at um, Pikelet getting into the, the van with mm. Sando, the um, sort of Svengali-type figure, um, and you sort of see that distance starting to pull away more. And I did yearn for more of that myself as well. Mm. There was some nice sort of... Yeah, cinematic moments that didn't need to say much but said a lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, with Richard Roxburgh, I kind of thought he was underused slightly. Yeah, he played the father, we yeah. should say. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. In the film. Uh, like Sally, I think it was incredibly well shot. Uh, the the surfing scenes and all of the the moments of going sort of above the water and under the water were incredible. The, uh, the way the bush is shot around... Um, uh, Sando's house, I thought was incredible. Uh, there were a lot of really great moments of the boys kind of like looking down various tracks and various roads. Um, and in that sense, I thought it was really well shot. Mm. Uh, but, but like Sally, the story just didn't resonate with me, didn't grab me. Um, the, the central character Pikelet, I thought was so difficult to read, um, where in some instances he's so, um, I, I guess um, well, it was it was very um, sensitive and withdrawn. Yeah, but then when he has his girlfriend at school, he's such an asshole, mm. and that that flip um, just didn't it just didn't sort of gel with me. It didn't. He was very natural. aloof with his with his relationships at school, but yeah. but outside of school with the surf, he seemed mm. to be more engaged, didn't he? Yeah. I thought I should while we're talking about the cinematography and stuff, just to talk about some of the, the finer points of the film. I thought um, uh, Martin Dean was the cinematographer, um, but they got a specific water cinematographer called Rick Rafiki um, to come in and capture those incredible surf scenes, which provide you know sort of pivotal moments. Mm for Pikelet um, and I just thought it just I actually really appreciate I'm not into surfing at all and was actually quite um, taken by how taken I was by some of this cinematography and it mm. really captured um, that 70s aesthetic as well and, and I thought that was really effective there was lots of I was reading um, an interview with Simon Baker and he said that um, the, the focal lengths were pretty similar to a lot of the surf images of that time so they'd actually get in the water and shoot those things they had to wait mm. for big swells and big waves to come and then the cast because the boys do the surfing themselves I understand am I right yeah, yeah. Um, they used to have to run down get into the surf and get the camera gear in there wow. so that was quite That's and incredible you, yeah and you get mm. I, I, I got uh, it had a big impact on me because there's this sort of immediacy about it um, and you do feel the power of, of the waves and the, that energy and I thought that that was really effectively done, very competently done. Yeah, there was one part definitely when I was watching it where I felt panicked for someone that mm. was sort of, you know, under a wave where it was, yeah, a big sense of urgency there. There were so many moments mm. where I thought someone was going to die uh, yes. in, in the surf and I yeah. thought that was um, that sort of sense of foreboding they, they, they created very well. Yeah, yeah, it took me back to the 90s when I would go boogie boarding at a poet <laughs> game <laughs> with my brothers. Yeah, me at Smith's Beach and Phillip Island, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. The, 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 the thing that didn't really work for me was actually, I thought Baker's performance was, was fine, um, but I felt like it, it lacked some sort of where the waves were so menacing. I thought that he could have been more menacing as a as a figure, as this sort of um, 
older Svengali male mm. figure that was sort of controlling these boys and I didn't get that sort of sense of dread from him that I, I feel like the character demanded but I'm mm. not sure because I've not read the book um, because and the reason I've not read it is because in school we were made to read something called Lockie Leonard which Tim Winton wrote. I had to read Lockie Leonard And too. I hated yeah. it so I loathed and detested <laughs> that novel and it was about a young boy and surfing, surfing. Yeah, no, and yeah. I just could not relate at all to this thing and we had to spend half a year on it and I just have hated Tim Winton ever since for making me go through that and I thought oh great here's another Tim Winton story about um, surfing Um, and yeah for me I just it was far far too much of this film is spent in the surf which as much as I liked it was way too long. It was, a, it was an hour before I felt anything really of significance happened. And then there's a big shift that we've all sort of skirted around the edges of um, where there's a sexual awakening, let's say. Um, and, and that's when the film became much more interesting for me. How about you, Cerise? Yeah, it definitely became more interesting at that point. I mean, I, I admire that the film took its time to establish characters. The kids are the most interesting thing in the film, especially the the loose cannon loony um, <laughs> pikelet's best mate, who's who's actually really charismatic and and holds the film. He's got a lot more charisma than Simon Baker exhibits yes. in this film. Um, this whole business of the Tim Winterness of things, I can't really speak to because I've never read anything of his nor seen anything that's been adapted from him. So I didn't see The Turning, which was that three-hour-long anthology film a couple of years ago, or Cloud Street, I think was adapted for TV. Mm-hmm. So I'm coming at this as a Tim Winton virgin. And um, I understand it was his dulcet tones that sounded remarkably like Simon Baker's. In fact, that uh, serve as the voiceover throughout the film that positions this film as a nostalgic uh, look back to um, uh, presumably a coming-of-age-ish time in young Pikelet's life. And certainly it is a coming-of-age, and the bit that we're all sort of skirting a little bit around the awkwardness of discussing is the fact that the coming-of-age does in- involve um, a certain dynamic that the law might not um, entirely embrace in 2018, nor probably back then in the, what is it, late 70s, do we think this is? Late 70s, yeah. 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 But, I mean, it, it's something quite sensitive and reasonably tasteful and, and not at all, scan- it doesn't have the whiff of scandal either narratively or seeing it on screen. It's quite um, realistic even. Yeah. Um, perhaps slightly fanciful because actually... The other party, I mean, obviously Pikelet's going to be one of the characters here. The other party is um, sort of a not very well-sketched-out character. So, um, yeah, but uh, I, I was really taken by the cinematography in the film. The surfing is beautifully shot. But, uh, but by the time the film ended, it just sort of ended with a whimper mm. for me. I just mm. went, oh, oh, okay, oh, right, it's over. Um, with some final comment from the... Time Tim Winton on the the soundtrack that does sort of wrap things up in the sort of way that was much too neat and tried to wrap up much too much that wasn't even in the film. It just was just throwaway and felt a bit flip. It. Um, but I don't mean to sound too dismissive because I actually did quite enjoy the journey. I just um, wish I'd somehow it, it somehow resonated more, and I actually kind of wish that the this whole sexual relationship in it had had a bit more of a in a. a potency to it somehow so i did come out of it feeling affected Mm. the other little reflection i had whilst watching it is that australia was actually really key in the development of a a sort of a little sub-genre of sporting film just known as sort of the surf movie celebrations of the surfing lifestyle often with amazing 
psychedelic guitar rock soundtracks like Morning of the Earth from 1971 and nothing of that sensibility really seemed to seep into this film and I think that would have livened things up a bit. Mm. The, the soundtrack to this is all very... Pedestrian? Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's mm. just... It's mellow. Yeah, mm. washes of... Um, Fleetwood Mac and, oh, and, and a, yeah, a little Fleetwood Mac yeah. song which probably cost half the film's budget to replace <laughs> which isn't to say it's a low budget <clears throat> film or looks it but that would have no. cost a fortune yes mm. yeah so I, I have quite mixed feelings about it but I, I mean I don't resent having seen it yeah. it's just um, didn't create the impression with me not, not something that I think will last I, uh, I wonder I, I, look uh, maybe it's going to be a bit of a spoiler alert but the young can I say? Do you think? I don't oh, know. I think, I think uh, I, I've read um, yes. a lot in papers where they've t- talked they just about talk this. about it. So lots I of people have read the book. Presumably, go for it. So yeah. the, 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 the crux of the film it happens where um, Sando, who is their m- mentor, goes away on a surfing trip with um, with the, the wild friend um, mm. Looney and, and, and leaves our sort of main protagonist um, so, so, sort of sad, sad and forlorn back at um, back in the, this little town, and he strikes up a sexual relationship with Sando's um, wife, who's Again, much younger than um, Sando. So she's probably in his 20s. Sando Baker's character is probably in his mid to late 40s, I think. Um, and then the, the young uh, lead character, um, Pikelet, is probably, we think, about 14, maybe. He's quite young. Yeah, and I think he's supposed to age a bit in the course of the film. film his yeah. school uniform gets a little posher in yeah. the course of it. Is yeah. it to suggest a, a year has passed. And they <laughs> refer to various winters. This winter was the swells weren't so great. great. And yeah. Uh, just how much time does this encompass? Is yes. it two, three years, okay. maybe? Or I'm not actually sure. I didn't yeah, get a, a bit... I actually didn't get a good sense of the passage of time. But he certainly, which I think is an issue. It mm. is an issue. Yeah, because mm. I we're introduced to him as him being 13, mm. which if I didn't get a good sense of the passage of time either. Mm. And then if we're kind of going, no time's passed, then mm. perhaps this relationship <laughs> is very problematic. But um, I do think that yeah, time is meant to have passed. But yeah, yeah he's certainly underage. I think it's sort of. I quite like the way the film um, didn't sort of foreshadow the relationship too much. Yeah, it was sort very, of ca- came as a surprise. The trailer did. The, tra- the trailer did it? Yeah. Oh, I haven't yeah, seen yeah. the trailer. The trailer's cut in a way that suggests more of a psychodrama, actually, whereas right. it's all so laid back. I would have liked more unfold. of a psychodrama. Yeah, yeah. yeah, So it doesn't really deliver on that. And I've not read the book, so I'm imagining the book is more that, that way inclined. Well, the, from what I've been reading online as well, in the book, the repercussions of this relationship are explored more, where mm. he is affected quite negatively by this uh, this form of sexual assault, really. Yes. Um, and... No, and that wasn't explored. One issue, I mean, we were in, sitting next to each other in the screening. Um, you and Sally. Sally. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I was just pointing to someone. It's, like, <laughs> it's, it's radio it's media. Radio they can't see us. <laughs> <laughs> We're a work in progress. Um, <laughs> and there's a montage where uh, Pikelet is sort of racing off from school to always go to her house. Um, and people were laughing and people found this to be very humorous. And for me, I was like, no, <laughs> yeah. this is sexual assault. It's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, Particularly the type of sex that, that there's some sort of eroticism yeah. that happens, which gives new meaning to the title of the film. And yeah, and he's just quite dark. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. very dark. Yeah. And he's pushed 
um, to an extreme that he's not actually comfortable with. Mm. And they keep on... And it's suggested that even after he's expressed his discomfort, that type of um, kink continues. Mm. I do think that that is a really kind of authentic representation of teen sex and young adult sex, though. Mm. That kind of where you don't have that confidence to go, I don't feel comfortable with this, I'm not okay with Mm. this. That hasn't come through yet, which I I think this film actually did really well. Yeah. Mm. I just wish that how his character uh, sort of grows from this uh, experience would have been explored or touched on because like you said, Cerise, it ends with a bit of a whimper. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And his character arc, I don't feel, is fully explored. No, and you do expect more of a critique from the narrator. Like, yeah. to, as a grown man, to be giving us some sort of insight into how that impacted his life or something. Done. There's just nothing there. No, it's yeah. all very wistful. The whole voice tone, the tenor of that voiceover is just wistful. Mm. Um, there, was, um, there was one very funny moment that I wanted, want to share. There was surround sound in the screening and there's one moment where several surfers are up on a cliff looking at the Sando character surf <laughs> and then they all in unison go, Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> And then, but in the surround sound, it just came out of nowhere from behind <laughs> the left of us. It scared so It did. We, did scared. And we, we thought someone had fainted or something in the theatre. And so me and Sally just like jumped around. We're like, <laughs> no, that's the film. That is the film. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Well, now to another Australian film release following Breath, which we just spoke about. Um, the Gateway follows particle physicist and researcher Jane Chandler, played by Jacqueline McKenzie, who is happily married to writer Matt. They have two kids, Jake and Samantha. Jane has her own lab, and together with her assistant, Reg, is it Reg? They experiment with matter teleportation. Later, tragedy strikes. Matt is killed in a car crash, grieving. Jane falls to pieces. But a few weeks later comes a ray of hope. Using her revolutionary teleportation machine, Jane finds a way to travel to a parallel world where she finds an alternate version of Matt. But this version of her deceased husband reveals himself to be a very different man. A soldier, he carries a strange, deadly weapon and has a temper that can erupt at any moment. It soon becomes clear that she has made a terrible mistake and now she must find a way to defeat him and save her family. The Gateway is directed by John V. Soto, winner of the Best Director for his film The Reckoning at the 2014 British Independent Film Festival. He's also written and directed the feature films Crush in 2009, Supernatural Thriller Needle in 2010, starring Travis Fimmel and Ben Mendelsohn, and The Reckoning in 2014, starring Jonathan LaPaglia and Luke Hemsworth. Um, now, I'm the only one on the panel not to have seen this film but that won't stop me chiming in later, I'm sure. Um, Cerise, <laughs> what did you make of Soto's latest offering? Well, uh, latest. I, I haven't seen any of the others. Yeah. So, um, nothing I, to compare? Nope, nothing. And uh, I thought, well, it, it sounds tremendously ambitious. <laughs> on, on paper. I mean, what you've just described sounds like the sort of thing you'd uh, imagine would have, uh, well, quite a, a budget. A big budget, yeah. yes. <laughs> and uh, it, this, this doesn't. And it it is uh, something so high concept. You can certainly make high concept sci-fi on a low budget. Um, uh, for example, recent Australian film, The Infinite Man. I was scrambling to remember this one, but uh, we, we covered this on Plato's Cave about three years ago, and it was a really high concept film that played with loops and variations upon uh, things within space-time. 
uh, and, and quite successfully and wittily and with a single location. And, and this film doesn't have many locations, the one we're talking of now. The I keep wanting to call it the getaway, and I, I wish we were why. talking about the Sam Peckinpah <laughs> film instead. Um, the gateway. The gateway. <laughs> But uh, this, this film, it shows us too much technology too soon and in, in doing so sort of asks us to believe that the stuff we're seeing on screen actually makes sense as some sort of instrumentation that measures stuff that is not really being explained to us though where we quickly guess what it, what's being attempted and maybe it's something not unlike the fly that someone hops into one pod and they, or something to start with an apple and it will appear in the other pod and the idea is... That will happen and uh, the thing will be in the other pod and it will all be fine, um, unlike the, in the fly. Um, <laughs> but what happens here is, of course, an apple doesn't appear in the other pod and go, oh, where is the apple? And um, how best to figure out where the apple went, but, of course, to put a human being in it, uh, being one of the scientists who inter- has also got a personal tragedy to address and, and maybe undo somehow using parallel world invasion. It's It's... It's really high concept, but actually not terribly complex. It's just that um, it's something I always find it difficult to put my finger on quite what it is. It's not necessarily that thwarted by its low budget, I think, but this film somehow just doesn't click. And I'm not sure that it's the dialogue exactly or even quite the performances. It's just something about it that doesn't quite have an energy to it. It's just missing... um, it's, it's missing gravitas muscular somehow. Yeah, Goldblum. Well, it, it certainly does. Well, it, it does have a muscular Australian actor in it. Um, her hubby, Miles Pollard. Yeah, does he has a physical presence? And when yeah. he when he when we see him as the menacing version of himself, mm. he is legitimately quite menacing. Yeah, um, stalks around the house. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's just hard to really feel any weight. Uh, attached to the dilemma of Jacqueline McKenzie's lead character mm. and her sidekick, um, who I think, was his name actually pronounced Reg for some reason throughout the film? I don't think it was Reg. I think it was Reg. Yeah, because yeah. not having seen it, yeah. I've only seen it on paper. And when I yeah, looked well, at that, I was like, is it Reg yeah. or Reg? Yeah, but what's <laughs> it old Reg? Reg, really? But it's, um, yeah, he's... he's really underutilised and some, somehow it just feels like a film that could have just been had it have been fleshed out a little more there might have been really something here that could have worked a little bit of magic but I, I it's such an interesting idea for a film well it is yeah she brings over her husband from an alternate universe and realises that he's not the man that she loves and that he ends up being this really violent man she needs to get rid of it's such an interesting simple idea for a film uh, I think the script is kind of what's at fault here I mean the dialogue is very forced it's very just well, sort of flat but really yeah. flat I think one big issue I found that kind of was just like a domino effect for me was the moment when her um, when her husband dies um, she runs up to the car and the music swells up and then it's this really terrible soundtrack just dominates that scene and it kind of just becomes like a really bad TAC commercial. And for me, that sort of stopped the my emotional connection to her character going through this trauma from really developing. Um, and so because that wasn't really established... I wasn't really attached to her and when she started making all of these crazy decisions, I just wasn't buying it and yeah, and for me then that emotional weight had gone um, and it just became 
yeah, just that energy was gone. Yeah. I was uh, initially really excited to see this because I love Jacqueline McKenzie. I think she's excellent. Um, but, yeah, it didn't work for me either. It felt like a story I'd seen a lot before. Um, you know, I think Black Mirror has a lot to answer for with all this kind of stuff that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it felt like an episode of Black Mirror. And I think that it, it would have worked better as a short, to be honest, yes. um, rather than a feature film. Uh, I, I agree that I do think the dialogue was something that let it down. It did feel really forced. In particular, there was one scene where she was explaining to her children what it is she does for a job. And that was farcical. Yeah. yeah. It was just... Yeah, <laughs> but I think you'd uh, cut the film some slack if it had to been a short. It's because you, yeah. you, you would think, yeah, we we don't waste time on uh, exegesis here. Just get on with the film. Yeah. Just cut to the bit where the weird shit happens, and yeah. then we have to <laughs> contend with whatever it is that the weird shit throws up. Yeah. <laughs> it reminded me of the Simpsons episode where Homer has the time traveling toaster. If anyone's seen that, and they yes. end up go to all of these different worlds, and this world rains donuts. We have to go, and mm. it just they kept from oh, jumping yeah. from different worlds. But that's a really good episode of The Simpsons. It is a really good episode of The Simpsons. Um, yeah. And and as I've not seen it, what did you make of the special effects, given that it was quite low budget? They, they did look quite low budget. Mm, mm. Um, but <laughs> True to form. But then that's, the, you know, I don't necessarily think that's such a bad thing. For me, um, that doesn't take away from a film for me. Like, I, I'm, I'm completely fine with that, but they did... You know. From what it, what I've seen of um, clips online and stuff, it reminded me of like a children's television science show. There was a show called Weird Science in the noughties, and yeah, uh, it, remi- it yeah. reminds me. Yep. I worked on that. It reminds me of the kind of effects we used on that. On that, they weren't great. <laughs> One thing that kept bugged me a lot was that this lab. I mean, it's. I mean, she's inventing travel to alternate universes. Surely she's got one other more than just one person. Well, the security's also rather lax. Isn't yeah. it? it seems to be extra- extraordinarily easy to enter in, in whichever parallel word it, world it manifests. In. Why is your yeah. lab that's making groundbreaking research in someone's back shed mm. with one assistant? At least get some friends to be extras so it looks like. There are people working there. It's a bit it was, more high tech. Yeah. Well, I think there could have been a really good shorter film, even just feature it, but 90 mm. minutes stretches this yeah. too far with the resources they had to make it clearly. Yes. It, it really could have been a lot tighter. Mm. And, and yeah, the, the soundtrack works against it. It just doesn't generate the mood of dread. But even, but even the sound effects of when sort of the machine sort of turns on and transports someone. It just sounded like a microwave. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. Even... Sorry. Ding! Ding! <laughs> I mean, it, it just... I mean, even... I mean, but the score as well, I found to be really lacking. I mean, with a... You've got a sci-fi film, kind of be innovative or creative mm. with the sounds you're using, mm. not just this really slow, dull... Scott, yeah. Earlier in the year, we reviewed a film called The Endless, which was an American indie sci-fi thriller horror thing. Um, and that was really low budget. And it, look, it wasn't the most remarkable film, but I thought the effects were really effective because they didn't overdo it. It was incredibly subtle. It'd be mm. somebody walking toward camera and a tree falls down behind them or some sort of wind gushes around them and they created a real ominous kind of ambient mm. atmosphere and I think that these sort of low budget sci-fis work best when they when they pull it back when they don't they don't try to to overachieve and it yeah. sounds like perhaps that was the problem here 
Yes. yes. Well, it just lacked for atmospherics. I mean, mm. if it just had somehow had something more in the in the area that that it, very difficult to define area of mood mm. and atmospherics, mm. then you might have gone along with it more. But instead, yeah, it just um, mm. it just doesn't work. It's such a shame because I love Jacqueline McKenzie. Yeah, yeah too. I'm a fan too. Three triple R. Next up is a review a little bit out of the ordinary for uh, regular Plato's Cave Fair, but Stuart assures us that it is legitimately worthy of a film review. It is. Okay. Um, though not exclusively a film nor an album, singer Janelle Monae's Dirty Computer is both a concept album and a 46-minute narrative film project of the same name dubbed an emotion picture by Monet. It's in line with Beyonce's 2016 visual album Lemonade, which was the release of both the studio album alongside a 65-minute film. Um, Dirty Computer, however, is the third studio album by American singer Janelle Monet. It's the follow-up to her studio albums, The Arch Android in 2010 and The Electric Lady in 2013, and her first album to not be a part of um, Cindy Mayweather's Metropolis narrative. If you're not familiar with her music, Janelle Monet is um, also an actress. She's appeared in lots of films like Hidden Figures, Moonlight, any others that you can think of? They're the ones that sort of bring to mind. The key ones. Um, In Dirty Computer, Monet's Android character, Jane57821, attempts to break free from the constraints of a totalitarian society that forcibly makes Jane comply with its homophobic beliefs. In the film, Monet's character is trying to assert her sexuality and individuality, making her the enemy of a soulless regime. Actress Tessa Thompson, who you might remember from Thor Ragnarok, and actor Jason Aaron co-star as Zen and Che, respectively, lovers with whom Jane escapes the clutch of this repressive society. Stuart, as this was your suggestion, I feel your best place to kick off the discussion <laughs> and perhaps give listeners maybe a little bit of a backstory on Janelle Monet for those who may not be familiar with her work. So, yeah, she's always been interested in uh, sci-fi um, uh, conventions mm-hmm. in her concept album. So she does have the Cindy Mayweather persona that she uh, explored in The Arch Android and The Electric Lady. I think she's particularly interested in the sci-fi genre for political purposes. Um, so around the time in 2010, she wrote, uh, she said that I chose an android because the android to me represents the other in our society. I can connect to the other because it has so many parallels to my own life just by being a female African American artist in today's music industry. Whether you're called weird or different, all those things we do to make people uncomfortable with themselves have always tried to break out of those boundaries. And when she sort of first sort of hit the main stage, or hit sort of the big time, she was always in suits. Um, so she, even though she only recently came out as pansexual, she always, for me, presented as queer mm-hmm. uh, because she was always playing with gender conventions in how she performed. Um, and obviously sort of she takes it to the next level with this film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a... It's very kind of pansexual and um, playing with gender and uh, in, in very, very, very different ways throughout each of the the, the clips throughout the um, the film. Yeah. yeah. So, Reese, what did you think of this film? Uh, I I watched this just this morning and uh, I let it wash over me over uh, my second coffee for the day and it was a hell of a way to to wake up and, and begin a day. It's uh it's such a feast of startling, wonderful imagery. It, it's equal parts music video and a sustained narrative that, you know, it, it's not a, a, a particularly complex narrative, but it is extremely loaded with symbolism. Mm. Um, and, uh, I, 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 yeah, I, I was enjoying this tremendously. I mean, the, the music, some of it 
didn't hit me strongly at first. One or two of the tunes did, and I'd I'd heard about the the track that we just played before, um, but without hearing it until seeing it with the visuals uh, this morning. And there's there's a lot in there. There's there's a, a lot of pride throughout this. Um, what, what, what do we call it? What do you call it? An emotion, An emotion, emotion, yeah. picture. emotion picture. Yeah, it's very emotional. <laughs> yeah, so that perhaps also is referring to the means by which it's transmitted. It's not in cinemas. It's an electronically transmitted mm. motion picture. We're all watching it on YouTube. Yeah, uh, or through perhaps there are some other channels that's being disseminated through. But it's it's very much of of the now, um, and yet there's something very um, very familiar about the the. the battle against homophobia as represented in this narrative just from uh, a, a landmarks of lesbian cinema double bill that the Melbourne Cinematic ran last Wednesday when it sh- played two 1950s films heavily influenced by the 1931 flick Medkin in uniform or young women in uniform and um, those were stories about um, uh, the love that dare not um, then speak its name. Those films went to great pains not to speak any names. <laughs> uh, here, uh, Janelle Monet's character in the dream sequences or memories, but are they memories within this strange narrative that are supposedly being deleted by two white men, very pointedly? <laughs> um, uh, uh, very upfront about where Janelle Monet is situating herself today, which is to say she can be whoever the fuck she pleases. Thank you very much. And, um, and more power to her. Yeah, I think this oppressive totalitarian regime is sort of not so uh, subtly uh, sort of being representative of Trump's America. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, one of, there's a, there's a woman in the, the pink clip uh, wearing panties that say, this grabs back. Yeah. Which is, yeah, great. I had lots of fun with this. It was great. And I also, one thing that I really loved about it, there's lots of things to love about it. One thing that I did really love about it was picking out all the little um, pop culture references that were put in there. That one particular scene we've got, you know, look at me, I'm Sandra D. that whole big grease thing. And then yeah. there was Holy Mountain, there was Kill Bill. There was even um, the one, I think it was during the clip, the, the, the pink section, mm-hmm. Um it reminded me a lot of David LaChapelle's film clip that he did for Amy Winehouse, Tears Dry on Their Own. Mm. So there was all this sort of stuff running through it. Um, yeah, really is visually gorgeous. Like um, Cerise said, some of the music, I am familiar with her music, but there were a couple of these that I found a little bit lacklustre, but then some really good tunes in there as well. I thought because it's so sexually driven... She could have amped that up a little bit. I agree, yeah. Um, but then she's so incredibly beautiful that that just could be me being a perv watching it, you know. <laughs> They're like, I want to be a bit more sexy, like, oh, 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 you know. Yeah, so, I mean, there are so many shots of just, like, half-naked women and she's lounging on them and caressing yeah, over them. Still was seemed a little bit tame. Oh, she's wearing yeah. giant vagina pants and Tessa Thompson's head pokes I think, through them. I think, yeah, I think that's about as playful as it got for me, though. I think there's something about this that, it, because it, it's attempting to be to, to push boundaries, but there's something so risk averse about yeah, it. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I was it, it, from the lyrics um, to the visuals, I sort of felt. And some of the she's an interesting figure because you sort of say she, she's like you know super famous, sort of, but she's actually kind of not. She sort of skirts around the, the edge of commercialism of, of, of you know of a commercial artist. Like it's obvious to compare her to Beyonce because she's mm. done the Lemonade album, etc. Um, I just found yeah some of the 
the the songs really dull um and particularly the, uh the there was one about um get screwed or something like that uh, i just found that really hilarious and i understand what she was trying to say there i just don't think it really worked for me and then there were other songs like crazy classic life i just where she says i just want to party hard sex in a swimming pool like that could have just been like a rapper any rapper saying those sort of lyrics it didn't really there's nothing that really cut through to me for those in those sorts of songs and it's sort of hard not to talk about the songs even though this is a film criticism show um, there's a lot of prints um, throughout this whole uh, yeah, album, yes. and and even through her persona, you know, mm. with Apparently playing she with spoke gender. With him, yeah, so she collaborated she, yeah. with him. Yeah, she's collaborated yeah. with him in the past, and and yeah. in particular, a song I'll play later, "Make Me Feel," is just mm. it could be "Kiss" from 1986. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great track. It's actually. a fantastic, yeah, it's really track. great. Yeah, so the tracks that work, the I think, are fantastic. Mm. I feel like the the, the look that um, they were trying to go for in "Wrinkle in Time" yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. is actually captured in this. this yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, look, it was visually, but it was visually amazing. But to me, it was a little bit like bubble gum. Like I lost the flavor pretty quick. But, um, yeah, I did. It, it was spectacularly saturated in color and beautiful black bodies. And, mm. um, but yeah, it just sort of lacked some sort of depth for me. I think I couldn't help but compare it to Beyonce's Lemonade. And I know there's been lots of other visual albums over the years. And it, apparently from, from a little bit of um, brief research I've done, it starts with the Beatles, A Hard Day's Night, which mm. I actually watched as a child and stuff. You know, <laughs> these sorts of, visual films to, to, to promote albums. Um, but, but Lem, Beyonce's Lemonade, which was re- released in 2016, um, I felt, I just felt that that was a, a much better execution, much more interesting film for me because, but Stu, I know that you prefer this one and, and I, and I think you should, I'm pretty you should, biased you should, though, yeah. I love Janelle Monáe yeah. so much. <laughs> Do you really? You can. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I love Beyonce in a lot of ways too, but I yeah. just found Lemonade much more layered. Like it, it was about, infidelity it was about black politics it was about being a black woman in america mm. it was about oppression filmically it, as well i think yeah that is formally more interesting that yeah thing. that said i i, I sort of applaud Monet from for making this accessible to everyone mm. whereas beyonce's lemonade was released on her husband jay-z's um uh, platform title which was sort mm. of made to um uh, rival apple music and what have you um and you had to pay for it mm. or you just at least sign up for the for yeah. the service and then you kind of get locked in and out paying for it anyway yeah. um, whereas this is available to everyone on youtube and there's something like nice about that i think you know but yeah yeah we, we watched this um at a drag race viewing party <laughs> we were a few gins in and the entire time we were just like clutching at our imaginary pearls is going, this the oh royal we oh my sure. god no. <laughs> <laughs> no there was a few of us yeah. i wasn't i wasn't alone <laughs> uh no i i think it's just i mean this is her coming out album basically i think mm. um I mean, so you could be cynical in saying that she conveniently came out as pansexual during the release of this album, but I think there's something really incredible about having Janelle Monet and Tessa Thompson, who is a pretty significant rising star at the moment in Hollywood, um, having this very unequivocal queer relationship um, in this visual album. I've, I mean... Yeah, I think that sort of speaks volumes in today's America um, and sort of today's world, I think. Mm. Um yeah. Yeah, she's an interesting figure. I just, and I think it's interesting that she just hasn't really had a hit in the mainstream yet. 
you know. No, she's. I mean, was, I mean, the there was there were several songs <coughs> on uh, the Arch Android album that mm-hmm. was, um, and now sort of having a mind blank. But um, there were several songs on the Arch Android. The album. sort of bridged over. Yeah, I mean, she's performed on Jimmy Kimmel. She's oh, performed yeah. on David Letterman. Oh, she's a well-known, renowned yeah. artist, and and mm. one of worth, I think, too. I just sort of find it, her an interesting figure. She hasn't really properly broken through, like say Lady Gaga. T- yeah, she's a, she's a similar straddles a similar sort of position. I find her work to be more cerebral at, than mm. Lady Gaga or even Beyonce. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Def- oh, no, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So I think for her to skirt the, 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 the margins, I think is a very deliberate act for her. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because yeah. I think, um, Make me feel, which I'll, which I'll play in a moment, has like, was placed at like 99, um, in the US. Mm. Charts and 74 here, and it just feels like yeah. that's the most commercial um, track mm. on this album. And I'm yeah. surprised that I just don't know why it's not sort of cutting through to the yeah. to the mainstream yeah. listenership. This is interesting. I don't really have much more else to say about that. I don't know what the youth are listening to today, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know don't know what America's ready for either. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Well, I mean, because um, Childish Gamb- uh, Gambino just released "This Is America" over the weekend, yeah. which is another. My partner has been texting that to me all day. He's like, "Watch yeah. this! Watch this! Watch!" This. I haven't looked at it yet. I haven't got time, but I'll look yeah. at it after this. Yeah, oh, yeah, I it's have. It's quite something. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's watched it four times today. Quite provocative. Mm. We'll wrap up the show there. Uh, tonight we discussed two Australian films, Simon Baker's Breath, which is on wide national release, The Gateway, which is on limited release, and Dirty Computer, which you can watch right now if you have connection to the internet. Do um, it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've been listening to Cerise Howard, Sally Christie, Stuart Richards and me, Lisa Kovacevic, here on Triple R's Plato's Cave. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.